Welcome to the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about the week's technology news. We've got four hosts this week, so that means at least 17 opinions. The show notes for this episode are at this, nope, they're at tehpodcast.com slash teh10. I'm Randy Castingham, founder of thisistrue.com, the oldest entertainment newsletter on the internet weekly since 1994. Leo. I'm Leo Notenboom, the chief question answerer behind AskLeo.com since 2003. Kevin. I am Kevin Savitz, the chief printables maker at freeprintable.net since I I don't know when, well, a long time. (laughs) Gary. I'm uh, I'm Gary, the host and producer of MacMost.com, where I post new Mac, iPhone, and iPad tutorials. And I also make mobile games you can find at clevermedia.com. Now, uh, we record this on Monday night, and uh, you all may be listening to this later in the week, so this may be different news for you, uh, but we're, we're going to start off by talking about uh, the Falcon Heavy launch tomorrow. I think you've got the scoop on that, Randy. What are the basics? Well, the basics are this is pretty exciting because a Falcon Heavy, which can lift, I think it's 90 tons into orbit, uh, which is... Uh, 70 tons to low Earth orbit and nearly 29 and a half tons to geostationary orbit um, only costs and you know only is in quotes about 90 million dollars for a launch but that's only because the Delta IV heavy which was its main competition before uh, that cost between 300 and 500 million dollars. So this is a real change in the economics of getting to orbit and beyond, and that's going to be pretty exciting, and Musk is doing it because he wants to send humans to Mars. So uh, for me, the most fascinating thing about what may happen tomorrow or may have already happened is that not only are they going to try to launch uh, you know, a payload, but uh, if that's successful, they're going to try to land the rocket and it's three separate rockets actually tied together. So they're going to land three separate pieces on three separate landing pads right after the launch. They that is that pretty off. neat. And, and that's yeah. part of how they're keeping costs down is reusing those rockets. And I think that's really neat. I mean, when the government was paying whatever the United Space Alliance was charging, yeah, you throw them away. But, you know, it's like that's a lot of tax money that, we, and we weren't developing the technology to recover this stuff. So it's pretty neat to land one of them. Landing three is going to be an amazing challenge. And as far as that payload goes, it's a little bit frivolous. Supposedly the, payro- the payload, which will be in this interesting elliptical orbit around the sun, is Elon Musk's Tesla Roadster. Well, one way to make room in your garage, I guess. Yeah, maybe he's making room for like the, the new car that that's coming out. They do have a new Roadster coming out. It's true. Yeah. Which looks pretty neat. <laughs> <laughs> but clearly it's it's a case of, you know, something halfway significant. It's it's nowhere near the the um the weight of uh, Falcon Heavy's true capacity. But it's at least something significant. Um it's great marketing. Uh, certainly cross-marketing between Tesla and SpaceX. Um, and 
as we've seen him do with the cars and, and with, you know, many other things, he's having some fun with it. I mean, why not have some fun with, with the whole idea? Um, the, the idea is that, you know, we hope it will work. He's actually setting, setting things up so that if, in fact, it blows up on the pad, um, he's okay with that. I mean, in the sense that he's kind of half expecting it. Literally, it's a 50-50 chance of the thing working. And if it blows up on the pad, well, great. Now we've got a whole bunch of things to learn. And all we've lost, the only thing we've lost, uh, is a roadster. Which is pretty clever, I think. I mean, yeah, I, I've heard that uh, Musk thinks that, you know, there's about a 50-50 chance. I'm thinking the odds are probably a little bit better that it will succeed. But, you know, even if it's a you know two-thirds chance, that's still something you wouldn't want to strap an astronaut to. But what a great way to test out the, the whole concept. Well, it's, it's not something you'd certainly want to strap astronauts to, but at a more pragmatic level, normally these first launches would have some kind of a, some kind of a real payload. They'd have a, a communication satellite or, or something that somebody was actually expecting to try to get into space. And that puts a whole different shine on the operation, right? I mean, it, it makes it, a, it makes it very different. Um, this one, uh, it's, in a sense, it's expendable. And that means that they have the opportunity to, to look for different things, to try some different things, to maybe take some risks that they might otherwise not be willing to take in order to learn a few more things. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a great approach. Uh, I'll be really interested to see uh, just how many pieces they'll have left. Will there be three or will there be thousands of pieces? <laughs> or millions, yeah. So their launch window opens at 1.30 p.m. Eastern time, and you can watch the launch at SpaceX.com. And they have three hours uh, in their launch window. So if they have something minor go on, they can reset and, and launch later than that. But the, w the window opens at 1.30, so it could launch that early. Now, Randy, you may, you may know the answer to this, but I, I think another reason why they're using something like a Tesla Roadster instead of saying, let's just put a, a, you know, weights in there, you know, um, is that when you launch a satellite or anything you're going to launch, you get the thing and you have to basically, you know, measure its center of gravity, its weight, you know, you know, find a way to fix it inside the rocket and do all these calculations to basically get it. So it's on this rocket that can also launch other things. And by, choosing stuff like a Tesla Roadster, they have to do all that. They have to go and say, hey, what's the center of gravity of a Roadster? What's the exact weight? What are the stress points? You know, how do we strap it in? Um, just like they would a payload that they may get delivered by a company, you know, that's being told, launch this for us, please. Yeah, and all of that is correct. You, you do have to, you know, get it in there in, in a very precise way and mount it so it doesn't move. If it shifted in the under the payload cowl, that could be catastrophic. It could cause the rocket to explode. So I can understand that they don't really want to put a real satellite in there because, you know, the odds of failure are so high. But, you know, I, I find the Roadster kind of frivolous in that there are a lot of organizations that would say, yeah, we would love to send a, a satellite to that orbit. We will accept a 50% chance of loss. Um, in exchange like, for like a free ham, launch. Like ham radio groups who send satellites up all, you know, once in a while, and it's super expensive for nonprofits and you know, 
groups like that. Like they would probably love to take that gamble. Yeah. Huh. And you know, they do get launch space uh, on other rockets. If there's extra space, you know, extra capacity in the weight and uh, you know, the, the volume, the, the inside space literally for other payloads, they do allow for other organizations to put things in, including students. There's a, there's a concept called CubeSat where they get this little space about the size of a milk crate and occasionally they can get like two of these together so they can make something a little bit bigger that they can put in there and when they launch the real payload, you know, probably some satellite, then they push out these little CubeSats also and put them into orbit. And usually they're they're not in a in an orbit that is stationary like a communication satellite. We want these things to to move around a little bit and we want the orbit to decay over time and burn up, but at least they can do some kind of science or something interesting, like, as you said, ham radio or something. So it is kind of interesting that they chose not to go that way. I mean, you can't really put a ham radio uh, transceiver in an orbit like that. It wouldn't be useful, hmm. but they could do some useful science or uh, or other experiments in the orbit they're going to, but they just apparently chose not to, at least that we know of. There could be a surprise that maybe we will find he out is, about after it's so known, launched. Known for his Easter eggs, that's for sure. That's for sure. I wonder if there's a statistical thing going on too. Like if this one blows up and they learn from it and then they launch three successful satellites afterwards, they could say three out of three actual payloads made it to space. Whereas if this one, you know, this one blowing up, was an actual payload, they would have to say three out of four made it into space. You know, this one they could just wipe well, off statistically. And, you know, I, I don't think anybody's going to be swayed by that. I think it'll come down to in the future, you know, should we put this on the Delta four for 350 million or should we put this on SpaceX for 90 million? Hmm. And if let's think down, about that. And if it does come down to that, it's more, if the equation's really a little bit more complex, it's, is there a risk difference between the two in addition to the cost difference? And are you willing to pay more for potentially lower risk? How much more? So it'll be interesting to see where it all, um, where it all lands. So to speak. Well, and of course, because this is designed for human transport to Mars, they are expecting that in the long run, it's going to have a very, very low risk factor. Right. And they're also planning on a, uh, the rumors are at least that they're planning on getting another one up if this is successful pretty soon, like within a few months is what I heard. Um, and yep. that being, you know, be. yeah, for 90 million bucks and with a turnaround time like that, they could have, uh, you know, far, you know, far more reliability simply because two or three, three years down the road, they could have so many launches under their belts of this thing. And, you know, that would also make it more reliable. Each launch makes it more reliable as they get more data and improve the equipment and everything. Yep. Well, it'll be interesting. Like you said, when you started, you know, by the time most people hear this podcast, they'll already know yeah. how many pieces it, land, it landed in. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, let's hope for three. Let's hope for three. Exactly. Yeah. So I didn't watch the Super Bowl yesterday. Um, not even for the commercials. <laughs> 
Um, but I heard, <laughs> I saw some headlines about um, why the Amazon Echo didn't respond to its own commercial. And uh, Kevin, you have something on that. Yeah, I saw an interesting uh, article on uh, the Bloomberg Technology website called uh, Here's Why Alexa Won't Light Up During Amazon Super Bowl Ad and uh, explained some ideas about why uh, the device doesn't always respond when it hears the word Alexa. on a television commercial. And I think we've all had, if you have, if you have one of these gadgets, you all have the experience where uh, it mishears the word Alexa. My, my wife was reading the other day. She was telling me a story about a woman named Alexi. And it was just like, I don't understand. And it's like, no, not talking to you, Alexa. Um, or a, a commercial comes on or, or a podcast like this one keeps saying Alexa uh, and confuses it. Well, but before Amazon, I threw it over to you, I actually muted my microphone so I could call over to mine to say mute so that if it did hear that word, it wouldn't come on and get on the recording. You're no fun. I know. Alexa, order Terrible Nerd by Kevin Savitz. Alexa, <laughs> confirm. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, this article uh, explains uh, about a, a patent that Amazon has uh, that can... Uh, that kind of it, it, ideas that that Amazon has had to keep uh, the 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 gadget from responding when you don't want it to, and it, according to this article, uh, uh, the patent broadly describes two techniques. Uh, the first one, I think, is the more interesting one. It calls for transmitting a snippet of the commercial to the Echo device before it airs, so it has like a an audio print of what this commercial sounds like and then in the future the echo can compare live commands to the this this foot acoustic finger fingerprint uh, i said footprint fingerprint of the uh, the snippet to determine whether this is something that should be ignored or not and the second uh, technique describes how the commercial itself can transmit an inaudible acoustic signal to tell the alexa to ignore its own wake word Well, that's Um, kind of interesting. So people can find out what that is and then go prank their friends. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And I'd heard something some time ago, uh, and I've been meaning to try it, that that people managed to make their Alexas uh, respond to inaudible commands by basically, you know, recording your voice saying something and then using Audacity or something to shift it up to a register that humans couldn't hear but the, the device still could. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and then, so you could basically trick it into, into uh, doing commands. And I meant to try that, although I, I never got around to, to doing that. Uh, but they did quote in this article uh, a, a Reddit user, a uh, Reddit post, uh, where one of the, uh, the geeks there did some, some more checking and concluded that Amazon, I'm quoting the article here, was creatively employing uh, the the second technique that I talked about with the uh, the, the sonic uh, uh, fingerprint thing, and said that uh, um, the the post uh, said that Alexa ads transmit weakened levels of sound in the upper portion of the audio spectrum between 3,000 and 6,000 hertz, outside the most sensitive range of human hearing. 
and the speculation was that Amazon is tipping off the device to ignore certain commands if it detects artificial gaps or bumps in the spectrum of sound that it hears. Yeah, that was the that was the technique that I heard that they were basically doing a, uh, um, gosh, I guess it'd be a notch filter on the uh, three thousand to six thousand kilohertz range, so that um, they were trying to filter out any sound at that frequency. And you and I wouldn't hear the difference. The commercial would still sound like a commercial, mm-hmm. but um, Alexa would realize that, hey, this doesn't sound quite right. I'm not going to do anything. Yeah. So and the other night, actually, we had the television on and a Best Buy commercial came on and they said the word Alexa and our device responded and was confused by it. And clearly they weren't using that technique. <laughs> but I guess I hope that during the, uh, the Super Bowl, Amazon... Knows better I was and, and listening to afternoon talk radio, one of the news stations here the other day, and I was on the way home, so of course I didn't have the device with me. But um, they were talking about Alexa, and of course we're here in, in the Seattle area, Amazon Home, and one of the um, uh, hosts just went completely nuts and started saying things like, you know, Alexa, buy toilet paper. Alexa, buy this. Alexa, buy that. And I've got to believe that their listeners just went nuts because they're not going to have the notch filter in there, right? They're not going to have the technology to, to prevent that. He's doing it specifically to prank all of his listeners that happen to have, a, uh, you know, the Amazon Echo. Sure. That would be annoying as all heck. I mean, <laughs> well, I've actually got buying turned off on mine and you can also put a pin on it. So if you do buy something and I'll ask you for the password and things like that. So there are ways around this, but most people probably just leave it on the default. Well, and it's annoying just to get the response, even if it's not going to allow you to buy just waking up to, you know, I know that if you, your name happens to be Alexa or you have a, somebody in your household that has that name that you could change to another uh, trigger word. There's a few that you can choose. Um, but you I really, to think, you really need to be able to set your own though, because yeah, you know, well, hello computer is just not good enough for there's me. There's only four. There's literally only four. There's Amazon, Echo, Alexa, and computer. And that's it. And that's not enough. Right. If you have four kids and you name them that. <laughs> you know. Well, but especially for a geek's house, you know, we say the word computer all, all the, time. the time. We say all Amazon time. all the time. Yeah. You know, yeah. Maybe not Echo, but, you know, come on, give us some choices or let us train it with our own word. Well, and if your name is Alexa and you've disabled that trigger word in your own house, you're still probably going to get invited to parties a lot less, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Don't invite invite her because, you know, then... Uh, Last time we got (laughs) three cases of creamed corn in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) She kept asking for this and we kept kept ordering, yeah. The other other story I've heard, for all I know, was on a previous podcast here. Um, Some poor waitress was named Alexa and all the customers would basically talk to her like the Alexa device. It's like, <laughs> Alexa, get me a Coke. <laughs> Alexa, get me coffee. You know, oh. that kind of thing. Horrible. Yeah, I've heard that one before. Thanks. I'm sorry. I don't have a tip in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I don't think that the uh, intersection of people who listen to this podcast and the people who watch the Super Bowl is probably a lot of people, but 
still, this is uh, something that Amazon has to contend with. And uh, I thought it was interesting, the, the ways that they have uh, thought to deal with this problem. Yep. And I'm we're curious. terribly, terribly sorry if we triggered your Echo device. Trigger warning. Did, did, <laughs> so to be clear, did any of us watch the Super Bowl? Nope. I watched portions because, number one, I was in a restaurant where they had it on. Uh, and, and actually, I caught a lot of the halftime show because that well, was on the TV, you know, in the restaurant while I was eating. And then I watched probably the last, uh, last quarter. Um, I'm from Philadelphia, so like my Facebook feed is filled with uh, people that I grew up with, family members, all rooting for the Eagles. So um, it kind of pushed me to, uh, to at least pay attention to what was going on. Uh, I've got Social Fixer turned on in, uh, in my Facebook feed so that I w- just wipe out all that stuff, all the politics, all the, all the football, it's all gone. The one concession that I did make is I did end up watching a YouTube video that was posted, I think, an hour or so after um, of Pink singing the national anthem. Uh, for one thing, I'm a Pink fan, but the other is that she was battling the flu, so I was really curious yeah. as to whether or not she would pull it off, and she did an awesome job. So. And made and made a big deal, you know, the, that her spitting out that cough drop just before yeah, singing well. uh, got a lot of positive uh, feedback from people uh, who could relate to uh, relate to it, I guess. Well, I have I know that's on uh, YouTube, so I heard it was very good, and I haven't watched it yet, but I will. Yeah, I watched <laughs> a lot of the commercial. You know, I've learned that you don't have to watch the game for the commercials anymore. You can just go to the many blog posts. Uh, before and after that just link to the commercials um, and uh, and watch them online. And then you can pick and choose. Yeah, last year I recorded the game on my DVR and was going to you know skim through and watch things that looked interesting. But, you know, I never got to it and just deleted it. So this year I didn't even bother. I'm a, I'm a puppy bull man myself. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not lingerie and, bull, huh? <laughs> did you notice the puppy bull did have? No. A corgi. Did it? Oh, oh I'd be shocked if it hadn't. Okay. <laughs> Actually, this is the first one. But, you know, those of us who pay attention to these things keep track. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. In your circles, that was a big deal. It was a very big deal. Yeah. That's what filled up my Facebook feed. <laughs> <laughs> As it should be. So let's turn a little bit more serious. Gary, you've got an interesting topic. Yeah, it's uh, YouTube's in the news for a couple of interesting things, it, you know, YouTube's been around for a long time now, and it, things have been pretty quiet. I mean, you can go months without hearing a story about YouTube, uh, but there's been a few things. Um, the uh, so the first story is that they started putting labels on some videos, or supposedly started putting labels on some videos of state-sponsored news, and so that sounds like a, a good idea, right? If it's some state-sponsored news, uh, a.k.a. propaganda. Propaganda, yeah. Um, you know, label it. So, for instance, the one article I read said they're, they're labeling the Russian, you know, state-sponsored news stuff. But they are also supposedly labeling news from PBS, Public Broadcasting System in the United States. And that's kind of interesting because, uh, first of all, I don't know if too many people were accusing PBS of fake news or anything like that. Um, but also, PBS only gets a small portion of its funding from uh, the government from tax dollars. Most of what it gets is from uh, private donations. 
as many of us who watch PBS or watched it over our lives know, you know, they're always hitting you up for donations and everything. And, um, and so, yeah, it's kind of the idea that uh, a lot of news networks have no label, but PBS news is going to have a little, you know, label on it saying it's state sponsored um, was kind of uh, you know, triggered a few people. I actually, just before recording here, I went and looked to see what this label looked like and I can't find any label on anything PBS on YouTube. So maybe they changed or, or decided to hold off on implementing it. Um, or they just haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah. I mean, they said, this was from last week and they said they were supposed to start doing it immediately. And so, uh, but I can't find it. The, um, so this is kind of in reaction to a lot of this stuff about around politics and around, you know, influence, you know, things online influencing people and, you know, YouTube trying supposedly to, you know, clean things up a bit. They talk about uh, also their algorithm to try to get people to watch more videos. You know, you search for a specific video, you watch it, and then it suggests other videos to watch. And the algorithms, people are accusing it of skewing towards sensational news because the algorithm has learned that if you're watching a piece of news about something and then you see something on, on the side that actually is like outrageous and really gets you to want to find out what that's about, you'll click on it. And so the more sensational, the better, <laughs> which just leads people down these rabbit holes of, of maybe fake news and politically slanted news and things like that on Facebook. So they're trying to clean that up and, and this is their first step. But, um, you know, the, the idea now that they are doing something that's not based on whether or not somebody would watch a video. In other words, like showing you things that will get you to watch more YouTube videos, but showing you things based on what may or may not be more truthful. Um, this is a first for YouTube. So that's, that's the first story is this labeling different types of news sources, the start of that. Uh, the other story is uh, a U.S. senator is accusing YouTube of um, their of prop of serving up propaganda. So this ties into what I was saying before. Uh, you know, basically being political because of the way the algorithm algorithm works. So so there's that, and then there's also all, a lot of this is in reaction uh, to outrage earlier last year. Uh, that advertisers were shocked to find their ads on objectionable videos because the way advertising works online, and I know I, I know I have to explain this because a lot of people that aren't in, in this business, like the four of us are, they don't realize a lot. Of, they don't think about like the ads online and how they get there. Um, they're just served up by an algorithm. There's no way that a human being could take an ad, an ad and then look at millions of websites and then decide where the ad goes. It's Although just, they can do that if they want, they can target sites. They, they can, but they're not going to, you know, all these sites and, and in the case of YouTube, all these videos, um, they just basically say, well, we want to be on videos that, you know, uh, males or females between this age and that age and this level, you know, they can do demographic stuff or they can do topical stuff. We want to be on videos that are about the news or about politics or something. And advertisers were shocked to find that their ads were places they didn't want them to be because their ads were basically like on white supremacist videos, white supremacist videos, uh, you know, pornography, 
uh, pornography that was short lived because you know taken down, but still there. Uh, you know, add uh, a video. There's a well known video that actually showed a dead body, uh, and of course, all those have ads next to them, and those ads are going to be something from some company. So if you wanted to find an ad next to an inappropriate piece of content, just keep looking at YouTube or actually for that matter, look at any website, do it long enough and you'll find that kind of mismatch. So advertisers basically had to pay attention to this and demand that YouTube stop it. And of course, how is YouTube supposed to stop that? You know, when there's so many, so much video uploaded every day and advertisers demand more ad space. So, you know, there's really no good solution. And it, it in fact, may be why uh, YouTube started restricting who can have ads on their site, uh, on their videos, you know, part of that ad partner program we talked about before, where you have we to- did. I think it was on our list of potential topics. Potential, okay. <laughs> Never yeah. Got to, but, I mean, YouTube yeah. removed, you know, basically said, if you don't have a ton of traffic coming to your YouTube channel, you can't share in the, in the profits of, uh, of ads. And, you know, I guess that means that maybe fewer uh, YouTube channels that they have to pay attention to, you know, if they're going to have moderators look at channels Mm -hmm. and give them the thumbs up for displaying advertisements. So anyways, a lot of stuff uh, going on with YouTube over the last week uh, in terms of this. And it's, you know, part of this whole problem that Facebook is having and Google is having about, uh, being accountable for the content that's served up by their algorithms, whether it's advertising content or user submitted content like Facebook posts or YouTube videos. We're talking really big numbers here. I looked it up while you were talking. Every day, people watch 5 billion videos on YouTube and 300 hours of new video is uploaded to YouTube every minute. So we're talking huge, huge numbers here. And yeah, yeah, there's no way that they could possibly police all this in any sort of easy way. Right. And if they want to monetize it, which they need to in order to, I mean, they have bills to pay. They're a for-profit company. Um, I mean, how do they 300 hours a minute, you know, if they say, well, we're only going to put ads on videos that we we review first. Well, I mean, they're not going to get very far. Not going to happen. No. Yeah, that's not going to happen. My suspicion is that they may end up having to go to a model where they'll only put ads on channels that mm-hmm. they've reviewed first. So basically, you end up building a level of trust with them, uh, at which point you can. Uh, and those, of course, are going to be the highly trafficked channels. One of the scenarios that you didn't mention that's also been a, a quite a bit in the news, at least some of the news that I've been seeing, are these challenge videos. Most people will recognize them as the Tide Pod challenge, where mm. basically kids are encouraged or challenged to um, eat, I guess, or chew on or do something with one of these Tide Pods. They're a, a laundry detergent pod. And of course, they can make you sick and whatever. And the whole idea is to generate a reaction video that then gets posted onto YouTube that then presumably gets a lot of, a lot of views. Um, there's a, a whole cottage industry, if you will, around these challenge videos of people doing everything ranging from, you know, the inane to the stupid to the downright dangerous. And that's the one that actually has me worried the most, not necessarily because of the companion advertising that may be shown up alongside, but of what it's also encouraging people to actually do in order to get views. 
um, it's it's sending a really bad message about uh, what it takes uh, to get to, to quote unquote be popular. Yeah. In the latest I saw on the Tide Pod, and that was just a headline, so I don't know if it's true or not, but somebody vaped a Tide Pod. Oh. Yeah. You know, Is that even possible? <laughs> I don't know. And it's just amazing what people think. I mean, I know that people are eating these things. There's been cases of kids, usually teenagers, having to go to the emergency room because they're basically poisoned by this detergent and all the plastic and everything else in it. It's a really bad idea to do it, but people are. It's it's incredible. The most recent challenge that I heard about is was to drink a gallon of milk in an hour. (laughs) Sounds so terrible. That's well, and that's tame compared to some of this. Oh, it's so tame. I know, but I mean, oh, it just. It turns my stomach just thinking about it. But uh, I I even heard about adults actually dumping ice water over each other a couple of years ago. But you know, <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Some kind of a stupid challenge. <laughs> Who would do such a thing? It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So so big. I think I think a lot of soul internet. The internet is doing some soul searching. Um, and it's time. All of this. And, it uh, is, but what's really bizarre, and, and I have to, you know, I have to agree with what Gary said. This is not a, a problem that's easily solvable with technology. I just don't know how you, um, quote unquote, control what people upload, what people watch, uh, how you, you know, manage the, uh, the the flow of advertisements against some of this stuff. I mean, it's a really, really hard problem. And I actually got so tired of Google sending me warnings that, you know, I was talking about, you know, sensitive topics because they were in the news and I do news commentary. Yet at the same time, they were putting these very risque ads on my site. So I eventually just said, forget it and pulled all the ads off. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my solution to my particular problem. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, Turning to some some more tech-oriented stuff, uh, Leo, you've got uh, something you want to talk about, about uh, Windows 10 with their backups. Yeah. So, as you know, I mean, in the real world, I'm all about corgis, and online, I'm all about backing up. So, imagine my reaction when, a couple of months ago, in the release notes for the, at that point, forthcoming creators update, it became clear that Microsoft was actually going to at least deprecate and has warned now formally that they are going to remove the imaging backup functionality from within the operating system. Windows has always had kind of a love-hate relationship with backing up. As of Windows 7, they actually came up with an image backup solution that kind of sort of did the job. It, it, bet, it met the what I would call the bare minimum. And I was actually at a point where I was quite happy to um, at least accept, if not strongly recommend, using what we now know as Windows 7 backup for people to create image backups of their machine. And for those who aren't aware, an image backup is just literally a bit-for-bit copy of everything that's on your hard drive. So that in the worst case, if your hard drive dies, you then replace it with a blank empty one and stream your um, image backup back onto the replacement hard drive and you pick up as if nothing had happened. 
So Microsoft is planning on removing that technology from Windows 10 at some point. And it's very, very interesting because you would think that, you know, Microsoft wanting to be kind of a, I don't know, control freak about what happens within Windows, uh, that they wouldn't make the recommendation that they did. And to quote, system image backup SIB solution. We recommend that users use full disk backup solutions from other vendors, which I don't, I, I, I just have a, I have a hard time with. I just really don't understand why they go down that path. Um, I'd much rather have them buy <laughs> one of the other vendors and have them install that as part of Windows 10. I just think that that is such a fundamentally important part of what the operating system should provide. Now, it's not that they're not providing any backup at all. They do have you know, a, good, a good scenario with their system restore. And I don't mean the system restore functionality. I mean, literally the ability to reinstall your system from scratch is basically baked into uh, what's on your hard drive and what's on the installation disk. Um, they've got uh, file history, which is a nice, more or less real-time backing up of the files as they change on your hard drive. Not all of them, but some of them, the ones that you're probably working on. And of course, when you factor OneDrive into the mix, you've got you know, off-site, online cloud backup that can also be used in a similar way. But none of these solutions allow you to do what I just described. Basically, take a hard drive that has failed, replace it, restore an image in one step, and then pick up as if nothing had happened. So I was really disappointed that they are um, in the process of uh, basically planning on removing that functionality. I suppose the, uh, the telltale was that they never actually changed the name. Even in Windows 10, they refer to it as Windows 7 Backup. So they clearly hadn't invested even in, in you know, upgrading the name to the new version of Windows. I have to wonder if it's all an economic thing that they don't have to have programmers work on this and keep it up to date, and they don't have any support cost. Because, you know, face it, they're going to charge the same amount of money to the vendors to put the operating system on their computers, or if you want to buy it yourself, it's going to cost the same whether it's in there or not. But it takes some headaches out for them. You know, since there are a lot of very good backup solutions on the market, I don't see why not. From my perspective, well, first of all, to address the cost and support issue, um, I think there are plenty of things that they've added to Windows 10 that people would much rather do without. One of the complaints we always get when they upgrade Windows and add things to Windows is why are they adding things that I will never, ever use? Um, I believe that it is much more to their customer's best interest, and then in the long run, Microsoft's best interest, if they were to actually invest in some of these fundamental underpinnings that would make the system more reliable. I always compare it to the Mac. Um, if I, I mean, I know, I know Time Machine on the Mac isn't the world's best backup software, but it is everything that I wish a backup so system included in the operating system would be. You plug in a hard drive, you say yes, and everything just works. You get basically all of image backups and file history um, just automatically happening in the background without you having to even think about it. The problem is that people have to think about backing up, and they shouldn't have to. When it comes to Windows, you're right. There are lots of alternatives. In fact, there are so many alternatives, and there are good alternatives out there, that people basically get stuck at not knowing what to choose. 
what do I do? Where do I get it? How do I get it safely? How do I install it? Um, you know, do I have to pay for it or is it free? Um, and, and even then it's more complex than that because you could, you could pay for it or you could get it for free, but you're making a trade-off on the features. Well, which features do I care about? Which features are included, but they're different for that product compared to this product. It's a very, very complex landscape and Microsoft is walking away from a huge opportunity to really simplify something that obviously I feel is critically important. So, one of the things that I was working on over the last couple of months, and I just released a couple of weeks ago, is in fact um, a book called Backing Up with Windows 10. And it's interesting because I, in reality, I began the book or began thinking about the book prior to this announcement of Windows uh, 7 backup being removed from Windows 10. So it steps through doing the image backup, doing a restore, setting up a, a recovery disk. It is steps through is doing, you know, setting up file history, setting up OneDrive, those kinds of things so that you can basically be backed up end to end. But then I found myself having to add chapters. I basically had to pick one of the backup solutions that I recommend, in this case, ESIS to do. And then I also stepped through that image backup process again. Here's the tool, here's downloading it, here's, here's setting it up, here's creating an image backup, here's restoring an image backup. Because in the long run, the things that I've got in the book about what's included in Windows, they're someday not going to be included with Windows. It's, it's frust as you can tell, I'm somewhat frustrated by this because I really do think they're stepping away from a huge opportunity to make the lives of their users better. Literally, today, I was hearing from someone who... Um, uh, who is trying to recover data from a hard disk that has gone bad. And nope, there's no backup. He doesn't have one. And the, the, I actually told him, honestly, I don't think you're going to get your data back. Uh, hopefully you'll learn from this. People shouldn't have to learn from this. It should be as easy as plugging in a drive and saying, yes, I want to use that for backup. So that's my little rant for today. I, Gary, I'm, I'm kind of curious uh, on the Mac side. Like I said, I use... Time Machine as kind of a, a a bar that I wish Microsoft Backup had reached. What's your take on Time Machine? Is Time Machine something that I should really be thinking of that way? I mean, I use it myself on my Macs. Um, is it? Am I? Am I? Am I? Yeah. Safe? No. 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 I I agree. Um, I remember when Time Machine initially came out. One of the things people talked about was its lack of options. <laughs> you just turn it on. Uh, and I was probably one of those people that said, oh, there's, there's got to be options. How often you back up, what you back up and all that. But now I think backing up is something that humans seem to always make bad decisions about. <laughs> you give a human three options, one being no good. seeming about it. Yeah. yeah, one being good and two being bad. Most people are going to choose the bad options. I mean, I still have people that will disconnect their time machine drives and then only connect them like once a week to do a back to manually do a backup. I'm like, no, just keep no, the no, 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 <laughs> and let it run every hour. Um, I love the fact that now that it has the really no op options, you can still set a privacy option, you know, for like, don't back this up, uh, you know, and specify a few folders here and there, or, you know, I think you could also encrypt cache. the backup if I'm not mistaken. Yes, you can encrypt the backup and you know, it basically has three modes. One is you never assign a drive to it, which means it's not on. The other is it's on, which means it backs up every hour. Um, and the other is that it's off, which means it's on, <laughs> but it's manual. 
And you know, I tell people, leave it on. It should just be on. Don't think about it. People say, well, every hour, that's a little much. I'm like, no, because if you have it on every hour, what's it going to do? It may have to back up like two little files or zero files or whatever. If you've ever lost an hour of writing, you know it's not too often. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. And if you turn it off, if you do it manually, if you were given the decision and said, how often do you want to back up? And you would say, ah, every week should be fine. Um, Not only may you you lose several days worth of work, but, you know, that backup may take a long time because it's got to back up a whole week's worth of file changes. So I, I love how Time Machine works. It uh, and also, Apple does tie it in with migration um, really well. So you just keep your time machine back up going normally, like I do. Like I think, you know, hopefully most people that uh, that watch my tutorials do. And then it's time to get a new Mac. You basically just turn off the old Mac, plug the time machine drive into the new Mac, and say, migrate my old stuff from my old computer. And it pulls it right from there. and you know, you didn't have to like connect the two computers or do some transfer between the two with some other drive or something like that. Uh, works really well. And then, of course, it keeps a history. Uh, so it's not a clone backup, you know, or, you know, an image backup, like you said. So uh, I tell people but backups, it, a lot of time you, you, it's a human error. You know, you accidentally delete a file or you change the file in some way. And you go, oh, I wish I could go back to how this was this morning. And with Time Machine, you can't. But in a sense, isn't it also an image backup? Because you can, you know, for example, if you replace your hard drive with an empty one, you can restore your entire machine yep. from your, your time machine backup. Yeah, the default settings are, you know, it'll keep a history, but it knows what the most recent file is. Right. So right. you can pretend that it is a clone of your Mac and just say, just restore the entire thing, and it will act like that. Right. Um, but another thing I point people out to in backups that are dangerous is if you uh, say you do your own backup using third-party software or something, and you backup every day, and you delete a file today, and then at the end of the day, you back up, that, you, you clone that entire drive, and then tomorrow, you realize you deleted that file. Well, guess what? It's gone because you don't have it on your computer, and your backup is a clone of the end of yesterday. Right, which yeah. doesn't include that file. And that's something that that I definitely end up walking people through. It's interesting because everything you've described Time Machine doing is absolutely doable, with the exception of of migration. But the backing up side of things is absolutely doable under Windows. It just isn't that easy. It's not plug it in and make it work. Um, so it's it's that that's the aspect of it that has me pretty frustrated. Um, the fact that you can. Uh, you know, restore individual files, great. Um, if you set things up properly, and of course you want to set things up properly, yeah, you can take you know an image or you can recover the file as it was three days ago or five days ago or whatever, um, depending on how you've configured your backups. You just have to know to configure them properly. Naturally, of course, that's what I'm going to do in the book. But the point is that most people don't have the book. They don't have these instructions. They don't really have a concept of what it takes to set up a Windows backup properly like that. So, like I said, I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed in Microsoft for having taken that direction with respect to backups. But um, I'm trying to help people out as I have for so long with backups. And uh, backing up with Windows 10 is, is another attempt to do exactly that specifically for the Windows 10 crowd who have this kind of stuff coming down the pike. 
Um, and yeah, one, you know, like this hasn't already been somewhat of a shameless plug. Uh, the book's on sale until I think the middle of this month. So it's, it's under 10 bucks. It's not something I purposely priced it cheap because I want people to be able to get it and do it and actually get their stuff backed up. And we'll link to it on the show page. So that little rant out of the, out of the way, you know, it's interesting in our introduction, we actually do talk about sometimes we'll rant. Well, I guess I, I filled the quota for this week. So Randy, you've got an update. Uh, apparently I'm not going to get irradiated by my phone. Yeah. We discussed in episode six last month about the state of California warning about the possible health effects of cell phone radiation and the radiation being the radio waves coming from the phone is not like nuclear radiation. I learned this week that two reports from the National Toxicology Program, which is funded by the National Institutes of Health, on cell phone safety are due to be released late next month, though they have published already a draft of both of these for comment. From those drafts, I learned that the latest studies specifically are using 2G and 3G radio frequencies, which is 900 and 1900 megahertz. And what they did with this is they put the rodents in these uh, basically radio chambers and exposed their entire bodies to cell phone radio waves for more than nine hours a day for up to two years. One commentator noted that a rat that is two years old is roughly equivalent to a 70-year-old human. So that's a really significant dose. And it took that much exposure to find any increased tumors. And they only found them in male rats, not female rats. And here we thought female rats would be talking on the phone more. So the Food and Drug Administration says, even with the frequent daily use by the vast majority of adults, we have not seen an increase in events like brain tumors. The FDA pointed out that the studies found that the rats that had the length, lengthy exposure, the two hours, they actually lived longer than the control rats that didn't get any radio waves. Unless they were on Twitter, then they were too stressed out and they, they lived yeah. died much shorter period of time. That was mostly <laughs> Facebook, rats. actually. Yeah. Facebook is much worse than Twitter. Those so the, the American committed suicide. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the American Cancer Society, um, they also had an interview with the Associated Press, and they said the or he said, I should say, the evidence for an association between cell phones and cancer is weak, and so far we have not seen a higher cancer risk in people. And by the way, he said this in a phone interview with the reporter saying, I'm actually holding my cell phone up to my ear. So the bottom line, again, is despite all this really intense, vigorous testing with way more uh, cell phone use than a human could possibly ever do, there's no evidence Cell phone use is dangerous to humans, period, even if you talk for nine hours a day for 70 years. Huh. Ain't going to happen. I feel, well, I, okay, I feel surprised by this. I, I have been in the camp of you don't want to put any sort of thing that's sending out radio signals anywhere near your, your head. And uh, I, I feel surprised by this and we'll, I don't know. I, part of me wants to argue with you, but okay. Well, I'll give you the links to these very, very technical research papers and you can look at them yourself. But uh, so far, you know, I, we're just not seeing the, uh, and the health fair, problems. To be fair, 
how many of us actually use our phones as phones anymore? Hardly at all. I right. mean, for the most part, nobody's holding it up to their head. Um, they're using it as a small portable computer to text. And, you know, that's clearly something you're holding out in front of you. So even for those people that do talk a lot on the phone, um, they're, yeah, I'm I'm not surprised that this isn't, isn't going to be an issue, but even at a practical level, even if it were somewhat of an issue, the reality is we're not using our phones that way anymore. Well, in 30 years when millions of people have come to come to start coming out with cancer in their left hand, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm coming back to you guys. I'm going to say, ha ha ha. I told you. You do that. All right. That's fair. Well, the, the thing is, so I, I rarely if ever talk on my, my iPhone, you know, you're, you're right. It's like an internet device. I play games on it and I, uh, you know, text and I, you know, look up things on Google. Yeah. But, but that said, just recently, I started using AirPods. So I've got two little Bluetooth uh, you know, devices in my ears. Transceivers. Yeah. That are, uh, you know, I mean, you know, one thing to look at, though, is much lower power. I mean, because the things only reach down to my phone. And, you know, there's a limited range. Whereas the phone itself has to reach, some, you know, miles, I believe, is the, the range. Unless it's, you know, talking to your Wi-Fi. But, yeah, I guess it does yeah. still uh, monitor the cell tower in case you get a uh, yeah. phone call. Well, even, uh, yeah, probably even Wi-Fi, it, it definitely has a longer range than that. And, you know, I, I think Bluetooth is, it may even be lower power for other reasons, too. It, I wonder if it adjusts. It may even be adjustable. Um, but uh, The cell but, signal, it definitely is. Yeah. I was going to say, I believe all three of them are um, adjustable based on, on um, what they need to do. Oh, interesting. So yeah. anyway, I mean, it's, but it's not like I I'm, have the AirPods in my ears all day long because, you know, they have limited battery life. They're in my ears for a short walk or something like that um, and not even every day. And I, so, you know, and of course, Bluetooth has been around for a while now. And there have been people that have been using Bluetooth to talk on the phone all the time and listen to music for, for many years. It's not like AirPods are doing something new. And you would think that if there were, you know, any kind of an issue, be it with Bluetooth or using your phones or whatever, we'd start to see a leading edge of, Mm. of incidents. And I'm not hearing anything about that happening at all. Yep. Exactly. So I think that's a good place to wrap up. Yep. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh10. Thanks for listening. Good luck to SpaceX on the Falcon Heavy launch and landing tomorrow. And we'll see you here again next Tuesday. Never going to forget where he parked his car. (laughs) In orbit. Good night, all. Good night.